Well, let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Spencer. Father, we love you and worship you, and thank you so very much for your word. And we are so grateful to you that you gave it to us, and we're also thankful for the beauty of, of the fact that it's uh, it's alive. It's not some dry, dusty book that we dust off and blow the dust off of and pull up some ancient uh, writing. But it's a transcendent book that's always relevant. It's always um, up to date. And um, it's always timely. It's alive. And we're grateful that the only reason it is alive is because it came out of you. It came from you. It came forth from you. Your word is powerful. Powerful enough to speak and the, and the whole creative order come into being just from you speaking. Nobody knows power like that, but you have it, and you are it. And you use that power with great, eternal, and unconditional love that love knows no bounds, has no limits, because you're not limited at all. And God, help us not to limit you and your dealings with us by disbelief. We pray that we'll trust you fully and completely, and we thank you for speaking. And we pray you'll, as you speak to our hearts in the next few moments, so you give us ears to hear. That you break up the fallow ground so that your word takes root in the very inner chambers of our heart. That we would take root downward so that there would be fruit upward. We know that's what you're doing, that's your aim, and, and we thank you, thank you for it. Love you and praise you and come to you with a sense of expectation. In the sweet and precious name of your son we pray. Amen. Let's go to Second Peter chapter three and we're just going to back up to verse fourteen. Let's back up to verse ten actually. The day of the Lord. And if you're physically able, will you stand with me as we read from God's precious word? Second Peter chapter three, verse ten. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, Look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and uns stable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore beloved since you know this beforehand beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness being led away with the error of the wicked but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. That's the word of the living God. Thank you. You may be seated. It's amazing how sometimes in Somebody's reading a book at the same time and one person finishes it before the other one does and they said, don't tell me the ending. Or if you go see a movie that you particularly enjoy and you find out somebody else is going to go see it and you start talking about it and they'll stop you quickly and say, wait just a minute now. Hold on. Don't tell me how it's going to turn out because you'll ruin it for me. And um, 
thank the Lord that we don't approach the Bible that way. That we want to know exactly how it's going to turn out before it actually does turn out, and we do know how it's going to turn out. We just read from it that everything that we look around that we put so much value in is going to burn up. It's going to melt with fervent heat. That ought to change everything if we really believe that. If we give lip service to that, it won't change anything. We'll just kind of go through and and uh, meander through and live puny lives for uh, things that don't matter and won't make a difference. Or we can come into it, press into this truth, and as God's truth takes root in the life of a believer, there's always a, a faithful response to that. It, it changes how we live. It directly influences how we live, how we order our priorities, how we pray, how we witness the amount of time we spend with our Savior, the focus of our life, the mind, and where does it go most of the time? Because we know, and look at Isaiah 24, 19. Uh, this is the, the Scripture. When I got up one morning and was asking God about some things, about what was going on in our nation and how to process some things and, and what have you, and He put this verse on my heart. And I, ne- I, don't, I, I know I'd read it before, but never, never had studied it or parsed it out or focused on it even. And got up that morning and and here it was. This is the future. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it and it will fall and will not rise again. There it is. If in this life that's the only hope we have, then we're to be pitied. But praise God, hallelujah, God raised His Son from the dead and gave us hope for eternity. It should renew our compassion for people who don't have that hope and, 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 uh, and, and, and renew our gratitude for the fact that we once didn't have it. There was a time when we didn't have it. And, and to remember and give some real quiet reflection to the fact that when you're lost, it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing in the now and it's much worse in the future. I remember the last funeral I went to, we went to two funerals back to back, 45 days of one another. Your aunt and uncle died. Uncle passed away and then his aunt. And in the first funeral, the pastor got up and said, for the lost, this is as good as it's going to be. Look around. This is as good as it will ever be. That's true. It's absolutely true. And that's a message they need to hear. This is as good as it's ever going to be. As a matter of fact, things stand to get considerably worse. And so what does Peter do? He plans, he prepares us for what we're facing right now. And that is this. For the attacks that come from out the church, 1 Peter. The attacks that come with it, inside it, 2 Peter. He ends the epistle by saying, grow in grace and in knowledge. If you look at it from a macro standpoint, growing in grace is patient endurance through suffering that comes from without. That's 1 Peter. Growing in knowledge is to grow in our relationship with Christ, our understanding of who He is, so that when people try to float in front of us things that are false, we know they're not. We know we can, we can parse it out. So Second Peter is knowledge. You remember the emphasis and how many times the word knowledge is mentioned in Second Peter. It's mentioned several times. So he summarizes both of his epistles at the end of it by saying grow in grace. How do you grow in grace? Patient endurance through persecution and trial. Submit to the authorities that have been put in your life, even if they're tyrants. And in submission to that authority, my witness and power will emerge in your life. It will stand out in your life. We are not a bunch of rebels. 
And we're not to be rebels. We're to be submissive to our authorities. Only if they tell us up to the point if they ever told us to do something that was clearly against God's Word. And then we stand, but we stand in a submissive way even then. And so growing in grace is First Peter. Patient endurance through trial. Growing in knowledge is Second Peter. That as we add to our faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love, our call and election is sure. And we grow up in our faith. And we're no longer... We're no longer what Paul warned us about in Ephesians chapter five, and look at it in Ephesians chapter. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter four. Go there with me if you will. Ephesians chapter four, verse eleven. We'll start at verse eleven. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and what? The knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And here it is in verse 14. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking in the truth and love may be able to grow it up in all things into Him who is the head, who is Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. A person's... The amount of time that somebody has known the Savior and their age has absolutely necessarily has absolutely nothing to do with spiritual maturity. There are plenty of folks... Who've professed knowing Christ for years and display little or no spiritual uh, uh, spiritual maturity, and there are people who maybe get in and start running at a fast pace and start growing and start just I mean they're just tracking they're listening they've got a hunger for God's word they're obediently responding to God's word they're not puffed up by what they know about God but they're humble and the more they walk with Him the more humble they become and then He comes in and has His way. And we begin to grow up and then we're no longer children tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. We don't get up every morning and go, hmm, I wonder what we believe today. And, and no, 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 no. There's a groundness, there's a steadfastness, there's an established profession of faith. And the one who is prey to false teaching that God warns us about in Second Peter is the immature believer who just won't grow up. There the false teachers pray. There the false teachers pray. And we were to be growing up in Him. And He said, if you add these things, it doesn't mean that we add to our faith. It means, if you'll remember, when we study that, we supply to our faith that which has already been supplied to us. We start applying what's already been done. It's already been done. It's a finished work. But the world's a past passing away. This world system is gone. It's been judged. The Bible says the ruler of this world, Jesus said, has been judged in the meantime we're accounted as sheep to the slaughter we're going to undergo persecution and suffering but in that we join with Paul persuaded that in the midst of all of that we're convinced that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which we have in Christ Jesus Attack us if you may. Attack Him if you may. 
But the attacks only cause his church to grow. It doesn't weaken his church. It strengthens it. If we patiently endure and add those things, we grow in grace, 1 Peter. We grow in knowledge, 2 Peter. It's incredibly important. I know this is God's Word for this fellowship at this time. I believe this is God's Word for this fellow, the church culture in America for this time. We lose sight of the fact that things, the curtain is being drawn in this age. It is coming to an end. It is coming to an end. And He's coming back. Several weeks ago, it's been several weeks ago now. We had a huddle meeting with the men. We asked the men to do this. And I'm going to be honest with you, I just encourage you. This is a helpful exercise for all of us to do, and I believe to do frequently. We've preached on this passage of Scripture many times, gone over it many times, referred to it in Bible studies many times. But here's what we encouraged the men to do. We encourage the men to go before the Lord and take the parable of the soils and ask the Lord. Ken Moss is a real good friend of mine. Many of you know him. He was in fellowship with us and he and his family moved to Rome. Uh, and I still stay in contact with Ken. They're doing well. Thank the Lord. They love it up there. I miss him greatly. He's a dear friend, dear brother in Christ. I was taking him to the doctor after he had taken ill and almost died. He came out of the hospital and God really brought him back from the dead, honestly. I mean, in a sense. And uh, we were going to the hospital to, to, to a doctor's appointment in the aftermath of all that. And we got into a discussion and Ken had a... And I'm not telling anything he hasn't said from right here. He said it from right here. And we recorded it. So this is what he said. And we were, we were talking and he said... Um, and he had, a, he had a real drinking problem. Um, and he didn't think it was a drinking problem, but it's just that he got to the point where he did it every day, you know, and that kind of, then you go back and go look at it and go, you know, I'm not having a drinking problem. And here's what he said to me when we were on that meeting. I thought, that's what, I said, Ken, that's one of the most honest things I've ever heard anybody say. And he said, you know, and God delivered him um, uh, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a church service, an evening church service. And he said, you know why I never asked God to take away my drinking? He said, because I knew he would. I knew he would. I, I didn't want to take it away. Oftentimes, we're afraid to ask God questions because we know he'll answer them. We're afraid to ask God questions about his will and his direction because then. We get kind of nervous about the fact that he might come back with an answer. And if he comes back with an answer, we're going to be held accountable for whether or not I'm going to obey. Because see, this is the way God works. And the way God works is, is he doesn't show you his will and then allow you to vote on it. What he does is, is he brings us to a place where we say, God, whatever you say, that I will do. And we put our yes on the table and then you find out what His good, pleasing, and perfect will is. He doesn't, he doesn't give it to you so you can um, be like a buffet. You know? And I, well, you know, Lord, I'll take a little of that 
and I'll take a little of that, but I really don't care for that. And so let's pass that by and we kind of fill the plate and we get to decide what our lives look like. You know, but that is predicated on an extreme misunderstanding of the character and nature of God because whatever He says to us is best. Whatever He says to us, we shouldn't fear. We should fear not hearing what He has for us and pursuing something that He didn't ordain or establish. And it's based on love. It's based on understanding the character and nature of God. He is not a God up in heaven who just gets thrilled, thrills out of making your life as miserable as possible. And if He can call you to the most miserable calling that there is on the face of the earth, that's God. He calls you to be faithful where you are. And if you're faithful where you are, He will take you where He wants you to go. And wherever you go, He will be with you. And you will commune with Him. And that's where you want to be if you understand anything about the joy of communion with God. It has nothing to do with your circumstances whatsoever. It has nothing to do with geography. It has nothing to do with status. It has nothing to do with titles. It has nothing to do with income. It has nothing to do with anything. It has to do with walking with God. The Bible says that Enoch walked with God and Enoch was no more. If you're going to walk with God, you've got to become no more. And when you become no more, then He becomes everything. And when He becomes everything, you can be full of joy. You will be full of joy. This is what we challenge to ask the men. Take the parable of the soils and lay it beside your heart. Let me ask you a question. Just what we know about God. I want to know Him better. But what I do know about Him, I think I can say this with good biblical footing. If you ask God to show you the real condition of your heart, I can't find anything in the Scriptures at all, if it's honest, that say that He would do anything but that. In other words, you know, the response to prayer requests can be yes, no, or wait. Is that true? If you and I ask God to show me the real condition of my heart, the answer to that is yes, every time. Because what does the Bible say about the human heart? The Bible says in Jeremiah 17 that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But I, the Lord, test the heart. I know the condition of the heart. And you and I stand to benefit by knowing the real condition of our heart. Eternity weighs in the balance. Does it not? And the parable of the soil is a gateway parable. The Lord said this. He said, if you don't understand this one, you can understand the rest of them. And there's four categories of hearts in the parable of the soil. There's the hard heart where the seed just sits on top and it's been beaten down for so long, the heart has, and it's so hard that the seed of the Word of God just sits there and it sits there long enough without taking root for the enemy to come and swipe it away. That's the hard heart. Then you have um, the heart where the surface looks healthy and it looks good on the surface. But just beneath the surface there, there's hardness and you can't see it. 
And the Word does find its way down in there only to a certain point. And it finds its way in there so that there's explosive growth upstairs. And it looks healthy and everything looks great. Emotion, joy, hallelujah, amen. And then the Bible says the tribulation and trials and testing come as depicted by the sun. And what does the plant do? It withers and dries up and falls away because of the hardness that can't be seen beneath it. You see, the health of a plant is not determined by what it looks like on the surface. The health of the plant is determined by what it looks like beneath it. That's the emotional heart. Emotion. Got to have emotion. Got to have the next whatever. I got to have the next fix. I got to have some more of this. Sensational. I got to have that. That's what keeps me. And then when times run into, you run into difficulty and trials and tribulations because there's no genuine root system there available to you, the plant withers. Then here's the third category of heart. And I'm just, I'm just going to mention this and share it with you because I believe that our church culture, I'm looking at it from a standpoint of the fact that I've been called to pastor this church. And thank God for that. And God doesn't need me. I need Him. But also, not from the standpoint of only my heart, which that's the first question I'm asking. God, what does my heart look like? But also, the, 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 what, what in general, where are we in general, maybe? What kind of characterizes? And I believe that more often than not right now, our hearts are characterized by the category three. And category three is what we could call the crowded heart. Category three is the crowded heart. Okay? Now, let's look at Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And there are other places we could look. But we'll go to this one. But Matthew, the parable of the soils is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's in um, three of the four Gospels. And in order to get kind of an understanding of the whole parable, it'd be good for you to go sometime, I would suggest soon, maybe even today, and look at all three of them. Read all three of them because you can learn um, more about the parable by looking at all three of them because some of them, some parts are in one that are not in the other. <coughs> but this is Jesus explaining the third category here. Okay? This is Jesus explaining it. He's going to say, okay, here's the parable and I'm going to interpret it for you. And He tells us the condition of the heart by analogy and then He explains it. But let's back up to verse 7. It says, And some, the seed, which is the Word of God, fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. So we have a heart that's crowded. And it's crowded with thorns and um, weeds that have grown up in the heart over time. The Word of God does find its way into the heart. It does find its way into the heart, and that's the seed. In verse 22, he tells us, here's what happened. He who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the Word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the Word and he becomes unfruitful. In a sense, in our church culture, we're crowded. We're crowded. 
We're crowded with a bunch of things that have come up over time. Now, we talked about this parable before, and I've, and I've preached on this before, and you've heard this before if you've been here within any length of time, but I want to share it again. The back when I was in the banking business, we had a, a sod farm to bank with us, and I just started with a brand new bank. I'd left Wachovia, and after I got married, as soon as I got off my honeymoon, I went and worked for another small, what they called Denovo Banks back then. And I was just getting to know the bank and the customers, and, I, and I, they assigned me to an office up in uh, to Canton to hang out with the chief credit officer for a while just to find out how they do things. And he was the account officer for this sod farm. And I'd driven by that sod farm many times. It's kind of in the flood basin of the Etowah River. And it's just got acres and acres and acres of sod all over it. And uh, Pat, you've probably seen it before, being from Cherokee County. And, I, and so I, um, and I asked him a question. I said, now, uh, Spence, uh, let me ask you this. How is it that a weed gets in the middle of that? Because you'll look out there sometime and just see right in the middle of it a weed. And he said, how is it that that happens? And y'all probably already know this already, but uh, I didn't. And, and uh, he said, bird droppings. I said, well, that makes sense. So what happens is, is a bird will fly over it, and the bird has eaten seed, you know, that's a dandelion seed or whatever, whatever you don't want. And he flies over it, and he drops on it, and that seed takes root. And there you have a weed in the middle of this beautiful sod farm. There's a weed that's come up. In the parable of the soils, the bird is the devil. And so what happens is, is the devil flies over the soil of our heart and does his business. And he drops lie after lie after lie after lie. The deceitfulness of riches. You know why it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? It's because when you're rich in this life, it's kind of hard to see that spiritually speaking, you're bankrupt. It's kind of hard to see your bankruptcy when you have a personal financial statement to shore you up that shows that in man's eyes, you're not bankrupt. But in God's eyes, you are. And whatever you are in God's eyes is what you are. The deceitfulness of riches. So the enemy comes over, and there it goes, and the seed takes root, and we believe this lie. And then we believe that 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 lie. And pretty soon, you know what's going to happen. Untended territory, de-weeded, there's no messing with it, and it's beyond even Eric's help by that time. And it's crowded. And then the Word of God comes in, and there's no room for it. There's no room for Him. See, if there's no room for the Word, there's no room for Him. Because He and His Word are synonymous with one another. Is that not true? And so we've got all these lies and we got crap. The other way, too, for the sod farm to get messed up is wind. Wind. Now what do we just read in Ephesians? Don't be like children. What? Tossed to and fro by every what? Wind and wave of doctrine. And the devil just throws it out there and... And the wind gets hold of it, and pretty soon it takes root. And here we are, we got all this mess, and we got these crowded hearts, and there's no room. And that leads to fruitlessness. Jesus cursed the fig tree because of fruitlessness. God is concerned about fruitfulness, and He's offended by fruitlessness. As a matter of fact, let me tell you why He is, though. The reason He is is because in John 15, 8, the Bible says, By this 
the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So what it means is fruitlessness takes away from and robs God of His glory. And anybody who has even done a cursory reading of the Bible knows that God is concerned about His glory. And well, He should be because He deserves it. So this issue of fruitlessness. So Brian and I were talking one Tuesday and we were praying. And he said, you know what? Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 4, if you will. You know, in the, in the, in the men in particular in the church, we're, we're doing what we can to equip uh, and, and, and take the Word of God and, 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 um, and allow the Word of God to establish us as believers so that we're established. We have a strong, established faith. It's not feigned and not weak and not... Um, fragile. And God uses His Word to do that. And that's why we're doing the Romans study. It's exactly why we're doing it. And part of that is, is what God gave us in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14. He'd given us that. It's part of the church's, uh, the church's mission uh, vision statement. If you want to go to the internet and read it, I've gone over it from the pulpit before. And it's Nehemiah 4.14 and He says this, I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And he says, okay, every man in rebuilding in rebuilding the wall that was torn down um, had a section of their wall they were supposed to build. And you say, okay, Pat, here's your section. This is the Zomer family section right here. And Pat, you're the leader. You're to take leadership on rebuilding this section. Now, Lindsay, here's your section. And then Rick, here's your section, so on and so forth. And all of it was divided up into sections. And they had enemies. And the enemies are here. You remember the enemies that came up against them. Every one of them typify our three enemies. There were three enemies that came against them. And all of them typify our enemies. World, flesh, devil. That's what was happening here. And you remember that Nehemiah equipped them with a uh, construction tool and with a sword. And he said, here's the deal. While you're build, building your section of the wall, you've got a construction tool and you've got a sword. And the, uh, you, you take the construction tool and build, and when the attacks come, you brandish the sword. And what happens is, is if you run into trouble in Rick's part of the wall, and the enemy zones in on you, you sound an alarm, and we'll stop what we're doing, and we'll come and help you with your section of the wall. This is what we as men are responsible for doing. We're responsible for our section of the wall, for those that we care about and love and are called to lead and disciple. We're supposed to build that section of the wall. And the church is a beautiful picture of how when a man runs into trouble with his section of the wall, we're to love one another enough and be distracted so so much undistracted that we'll be able to come to the aid of the one who runs into trouble. It's a beautiful picture of the operation of the church. Well, Brian was talking, he and I were talking one day about this very issue. And he said, notice, and I thought, what a word. This is a word. He said, notice what happened just before they were commissioned to do that. And look back up at it. Here's what it says. Verse 10. Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing. Watch this. And there's so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. And he said, here's the deal. Before you can really do the job that you've been called to do, you've got to move away to rubbish. 
And I believe that rubbish is the spiritual equivalent to the crowded heart. We've got some rubbish that needs to be moved out of the way. Now, I cannot, I'm going to tell you this right now, I tried, and I cannot find one spot in the Scripture, one spot, where we could give you examples. And I like for it to be in one place, because I can give some examples and they're meaningless, but I, to what a rubbish can be. But you know what rubbish can be. Rubbish can be a lot of different things. Rubbish can be outright sin. A rubbish could be something that may not necessarily be sinful, but impairs your run. Let me tell you where I get that from. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let's go look at that. We've studied this before as well. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Look at what he says. He comes off of the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 moves into the conclusions that we should draw from this hall of faith. And what's common among everybody in the hall of faith is this. Here's what's common. They did things in their walk on earth based upon what they could not see, nor did they live to see, because their orientation was toward heaven. So, let me, tell you how, let me tell you a good example of that. We've heard that before. We've heard it before and we've talked about it before. You read Hebrews chapter 11 and you go, of all the things that God could, could commended Joseph for, look at the things that Joseph did in his life. He continued to faithfully serve even after false accusations from Potiphar's wife. You remember that. And, and then gets wind up put in prison and stays there longer than he should have. And then... Uh, that's come on the heels of not even getting upset or cursing God or turning away from His faith after being sold into slavery by His brothers. And then they go and lie about His death to His Father. And it's just one example of faithfulness after His life after the other. And if I was going to characterize His life and put something in the hall of faith, I wouldn't put, thank God I didn't write the Bible, but I wouldn't have put what God put as His commendation in the hall of faith. You know what it was? He gave instruction concerning his bones. And you go, what? He gave instructions concerning his bones? Is that the best you got to say about him? Look at his track record. Oh my goodness, we can draw a bunch of things from his life. But you commend him for giving instructions regarding his bones. You know why? Because he said, don't bury my bones in Egypt. I want you to bury my bones in the promised land. Because he was so heavenly minded, he was no earthly good. And the bottom line is, you're no earthly good until you're heavenly minded. And what he was saying was, is listen, I became second in command of Egypt. In, in practice, I was like Pharaoh. And I was enriched by that. I had If I said to somebody, go do this, they went and did it. And everybody was at my beck and call. I had the only one, Pharaoh said to this, the only one of the kingdom that's greater than you is me. And they're going to do exactly what you say to do. And I had all of those things. And guess what? After having all of that, it means nothing to me. Don't put my bones in Egypt. You put my bones in the promised land. Because one day, the Savior who put me where He put me is going to sit on the throne of we, His people. And I will be with Him to reign forevermore. Don't you bury me in Egypt. And so everybody in the Hall of Faith was commended because they had forward-looking orientation. There used to be a secular song. I'm sorry, don't send me mail about this. This was this is a secular song, okay? I'm not trying to lift anything. Don't do none of that. But there was a song out years ago that said, I only think of you on two occasions, and that's day and night. And I thought, dear God, get me to the point. <laughs> 
where I only think of you on two occasions, and that's day and night. I said, I was, asked, I was telling my family about that, and I said, Andrew and family, give me some examples of when, God, when people think of God. Andrew said, Christmas and Easter. I only think of you on two occasions. That's Christmas and Easter. I only think of you on two occasions when a relative dies. I only think of you on two occasions when the CAT scan might come back with some information that I wasn't really happy about. I'm going to tell you this. We've got to get our mind on things eternal because Jesus Christ is coming again. It's got to where now when I witness to somebody, I say this. This is what I say to them. I might drop dead and you might drop dead and I might not ever see you again. And i got to know this. If you were to drop dead right now, would you go to heaven? I had an opportunity to witness to several people at Centennial Park. We went down there the other day to go skating Friday night. And, and I said, Lord, just show me who to zone in on. I was like a heat-seeking missile. Show me whoever to zone in on. And God kept bringing this guy by me. And he had real long hair, and he was, he was, all, he was a nice-looking nice young man. But, but he kept walking by me, and I kept looking at him. I was going, why do you keep bringing him by me? And so finally he was standing up there by a post by himself. And uh, I went up to him, and I said, you know what? I introduced myself, and I said, I'm a, we could drop dead before the night's over with. And I got to know this. I want to know this about you. Do you know? Ask him his name. His name was Devon. I said, Devon, if you were to die right now, would you go to heaven? He said, I don't know. I have no idea. I said, well, couldn't I talk to you about it? We sat there and talked. I'm hoping that he's the first member of Brian's church. Because while he was standing there, I said, right now, right now, you could ask Jesus to come into your heart. You could repent of your sins and trust Him as your Savior. And he said, I already did while you were talking. Hallelujah. I'm going to tell you this right now. Here's the bottom line. I want to live in light of eternity. We are called to live in light of eternity. Think about this, y'all. I'm not talking about a bunch of people that go around all the time that irritate other people and just act like idiots. I don't mean that. But have an eternal orientation whereby we say, you know what, God, if there are weeds in my heart, if there are things in my heart that are impairing my journey, I'm asking you to show me what they are and I want you to pull them out of my heart. I want you to weed my heart. I want you to weed it. Because when your word comes, I want it to have such an easy passage in my heart that it finds its way to the very bottom of it. Quickly. Quickly. Because it's been tilled up. It's been tilled up to the point where it finds its way down there and it's not impaired by any hardness. It's not impaired by any disbelief. It's not impaired by notions about the past. What is your clutter? What's in between you and that wall that you have to constantly go around and not only impair your building, but keep you from ever getting to the wall in the first place? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run the race with endurance that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the throne of God. Young people, can I tell you this? Before you go out and buy a house to get yourself saddled with a bunch of things that you ought not to be saddled with, go before the Lord, put your yes on the table, and say, God, whatever you have for me, or whatever you want to do with me, before I get encumbered, and before I get entrenched in some way that I'm deceived into thinking I've got to stay in, you go before the Lord, and you find out what He has for you. 
But I'm going to tell you something right now. I'm 52 years old now, and I can say this as a qualified opinion. This world has nothing for you. Nothing. Dear ones, it has nothing for you. To be a friend with the world is to be an enemy with God, don't you understand? It makes you a spiritual harlot. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You don't get to decide who you marry. You don't get to decide where you go to school. You don't even get to decide if you marry. God is sovereign over those situations. Find out what's on His heart and mind. Make it your business to know. And stay there. And with tenacity, go after Him with all your heart so that you don't have to go to some big mortgage company one day and say, I can't go to the mission field because my payment is $1,200 a month. You have to go to the fireplace and ask the fireplace if He'll let you do what God wants you to do. You ask God to lead you into what He wants you to do. Travel lightly. See, what He's saying is this. There are weights and there's sin. You see what it says? Lay aside every weight. Runners at that time would often run without any clothes on. They would. They wouldn't do anything that could, could potentially slow them down. You got any weights on you? Get shed of them. Trim the lamp. Circumcise your heart. Get out the flint knives. That's what they had to do when they went into the promised land. They said, we got a bunch of people here who were born in the promised land and in the wilderness wanderings. And we're about to go into the promised land that God said the first thing is, you got some uncircumcised people among you. I want you to get out the flint knives and see to it and take care of that because they can't enter in. The promised land is not heaven. The promised land is not the sweet by and by. The promised land is victory in the nasty now and now. That's what the promised land is. That's what He wants for you. I mean, if we could just sit in the sidelines and watch a generation of you that are young enough and unencumbered, let Jesus have everything. Let Him have it, dear ones. Don't look at us who've been roaming around the wilderness lap after lap after lap, living puny lives, and look at the culture that we've bequeathed to you because we've done that. We've not taken God's Word seriously. We've not taken Him up about what He really means. We don't really believe in Jesus Christ. We profess to know Him, but in practice, our hearts are far from Him. And we need to quit that right now. We need to ask Him to get out the circumcision knives and circumcise our hearts. Take away the foreskin. Get it off of us. Get shed of it. And come out of the closet with what people are going and coming out of the closet with they ought to be ashamed of. And we're going into the closet with what we are to be heralding from the top of the roof. We really had... It's time to stop it. You know what? For you younger generations, I am so hopeful for you. I'm so thankful for you and I fervently pray for you. It doesn't mean that you don't go get an education, but if your education should be predicated upon hearing from God, don't you go around and look at somebody else and say, they're to be doing this. How come you're not doing this? Or how come you're not there? We're to go, you know what? Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord and find out what's on the Lord's heart and mind. Have the spiritual courage to do it. Whatever that may be. This culture and the shenanigans 
that exists in the culture and the mess we have at the White House began with the mess we have at the church house. The salt has lost its savor. We've lost our influence because we don't look any different than anybody else. We're just as nasty, some of the meanest, unforgiving people that you'll ever meet on the planet Earth are people who profess to know Christ who populate His church. It's the truth. It's the truth. I ought to stop right now. We're to love one another. Be willing to get in the ditch with one another and get in there and help build this wall. We've got neighbors that are going to hell all around us. And you know it. We should be a lighthouse. I wonder how many of them would be shocked to learn that there was a Christian among them. That's a Christian home? Never heard from you. I don't, oh, you, you guys are Christians? We've got crowded hearts. We've got crowded hearts and the Word has no place there. And when it does fall in there, it gets choked by that which crowds us. It does, y'all. It's happening. And I'm going to tell you this right now. It ain't going to change our faith anymore. You still go to heaven if you die or when you die. Excuse me, because 10 out of 10 people die. And so that'll still happen. But you know what? In the meantime, living a fruitless life, living a life that just gets by, we'll cower up in the corner somewhere and just endure it till it's over. Or we can be influencers. Build up the body of Christ. You can't go in unless you get out the flint knives. We've got some things we need to get shed of. We've got some weights. We've got some obligations that we need to get shed of. Don't not meet up to your obligations. But don't saddle yourself with another one until you ask God about it. And young people, I'm telling you now, keep yourself unencumbered. Don't you put on a weight. Don't you put on one and you wait on the Lord. You wait on the Lord and no matter who around you doesn't understand that, that's okay. You wait on the Lord. The Lord understands. He knows the way I take. And when I come forth, I'll come forth by God. He's got a plan. It's better than yours. It's better than anything you could come up with. Let's de-weed. Now let me ask you this. Here's the challenge. Could we not right now? I'm, I'm, I'm right with you. God, would you show me what the weeds are? It could be, what's, what's getting in between you and the wall? Is it uh, the past? Well, it's got to always be. You know what? Let me can I, can I say this to you? You will live in the victory over whatever saddles you the very moment that you come to believe that in Christ you already have it. You will, by experience, live in the victory over whatever saddles you when you come to the place where you really believe that in Christ you already have it. Because in Christ you do. It is not spiritual to wallow around by past failures. That is a cloak that parades itself as humility, but it is a cloak for great pride. Because what we're saying is, is God's not big enough to come overcome whatever His Son's blood claims it will overcome. If there's unforgiveness... That's between you and the wall. If there's, if there's bitterness, that's between you and the wall. You better get rid of it because you don't want to get up to the wall. You won't be able to come up there. If you don't want to stay in the wall, that's fine. That's fine. It's hard for me to believe that you wouldn't at least be convicted by that if you know Him. It's time to repent.
it's time to get rid of the clutter. Would you dare do this? Borrowing from Brother Ken. Lord, I'm at a place where I want to ask you, what is in between me and the wall? What are the weeds in my heart? Where's the crowding out is? I'm asking you. And the reason I'm asking you is because I want to know. And if you ask Him in sincere faith, He'll tell you. Because He wants... Here's the, here's the joy. The joy is this. God wants me to move from a third category hearer to a fourth category hearer. God wants that. My appetite for that is from Him, as a matter of fact. If I have an appetite to go from one to the other, it's from Him anyway. And He's on our side in getting us there. He's not up in heaven going, well, you're just stuck there. You're entrenched. That's the way it's always going to be. What's impairing your race? Is there a weight or a sin that's easily entangled? Is there? Will we dare ask God? I think the Lord's Supper is a wonderful time to ask Him. It's a wonderful time. God, is there a weight? Is there a sin? Is something on me? What is it, Lord? What is it? Just me and you. Would you answer that question for me? I believe if you ask Him, He might even answer that question right now. He might even answer that question while we're going through the Scriptures for you. But He'll answer that question right now or maybe He might answer it later on in the week. He'll answer when He gets ready to. And you'll know it when you hear it. And you can repent. And I can repent. And God can start de-weeding us and taking those weeds out so that there's fruit coming. You know that verse? Somebody this week gave me as a Christmas gift that verse. It sits prominently in our home right now. And it was just further confirmation to me, God, you're speaking. And that is this, that we would grow roots downward so that we would build, we would see fruit upward. That's it. That's God's call to this church and we as people. And remember that in Nehemiah 4.14, before he ever said anything about messing with the wall, he said, remember the Lord. Don't go to building first without looking up. Remember the Lord because the battle is His.